Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. If you're coming back, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, and I know there are many of you for whom that is the case, given today's guest, it is great to have you. Let me tell you how this podcast episode came to be, because it was completely different than any other show I've done in the past decade plus I've been doing this. And when I was in the early stages of planning stimulus, my friend Josh Russell, he is a physician currently doing a palliative care fellowship. He and I were hanging out and he asked me if you could interview any person on the planet for stimulus, doesn't matter how famous, doesn't matter how infamous and unknown, doesn't matter, who would it be? And in the context of what we were talking about, it honestly didn't feel like a real question. It was more like a fun thought exercise. Who were the three people in history you'd want to have at a dinner party? And, you know, a lot of people went through my mind. There's a lot of people I'd like to have on the show. But as I thought about it, I said, okay, I have to pick one. I can't make a list, can't make a top five list. If I had to pick one, it'd be Barry Curzon. Final answer, lock it in, no doubt. So who is Barry Curzon? That is not a name that you may have ever heard of before. He is not a boisterous social media presence. He's not making the interview rounds on a regular basis. In fact, as you'll hear, he spends much of his life in silence. Barry Curzon is probably best known as the Dalai Lama's personal physician, which we'll get into kind of what are the details of that. He is also an ordained monk of the Tibetan Buddhist order. Dr. Curzon trained as a family physician in the United States. He practiced in Southern California. And during his early adulthood, he suffered the death of his mother and his wife. Shortly after that, he went on a journey, a trip, a quest to Southeast Asia, to Asia, kind of back and forth, US, learning, studying. And through a circuitous path, made his way to Dharamsala, India. That is the home of the Dalai Lama, and you could say the home of the Tibetan diaspora. Now, in itself, just kind of that whole process, that's a pretty incredible story. But for me, it was what he's done with all of this experience and where he is and who he is, where he's knit together this connection between East and West, specifically within medicine. Not in the medicine itself, not in the practice of medicine, but in how clinicians and healthcare providers view themselves and their patients. I mean, not just clinicians and health providers, because among other things, he founded the Altruism in Medicine Institute that has a mission to increase compassion and resilience among healthcare providers and extended professional groups like police officers, first responders, teachers, leaders. And as a listener to the show, I suspect that you can see the value in developing and delivering a curriculum to increase compassion and resilience. That is so much of what this show is about. But you can also probably imagine that that's going to be a tall order. And all of that stuff that you just heard about, I want to talk to him about all of it. That's some of the backstory as to why Barry Curzon was the guy when Josh asked me who would be the ultimate guest. Yeah, in my mind... Dr. Curzon is a singularity in the best possible way. And as you'll see, the other side of that coin is he would be absolutely incredulous by that description. So to wrap up this story, how did this episode come to be? Well, about the beginning of November, I got a text from Josh that said, check your email. 
there's a little gift in there. Yeah, I wasn't having grand expectations. I opened the email and I saw a several month long chain of events and communication where Josh tracked down Barry Curzon. He opened a dialogue. He told him about the show, what we're doing here, and if he would be interested in being interviewed. Now I'm looking at this email chain. My mouth is agape. Actually, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. And as I read down, it brought tears to my eyes when I saw the reply. It said, Hi, Joshua. It would be an honor to participate in Rob Orman's Stimulus Podcast. Thank you for connecting us. Warmly, Barry. I will have to say that this is one of the greatest and most thoughtful gifts I've ever received. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with the Dalai Lama's personal physician, the founder of the Altruism and Medicine Institute, monk, teacher, and champion of compassion, Dr. Barry Curzon. When I asked my friends, many of whom are physicians, what question would you like me to ask Barry Curzon? Overwhelming. This is probably the number one question by far. This is probably the number one, two, and three question. They said, how did you get the job as the Dalai Lama's personal physician? Do you send out a resume? Is this uh, you know, something you interview for? Did you fall into it? Before I jump into that, and this is 100% sincere, I don't know why people are interested in me. Well, I think that number one, that's a unique position to be in as a physician connected to the Dalai Lama, but also it's because you are a physician who is teaching something that people are hungry for, and I don't think they realize how hungry for. I mean, it's like, you know, they're like a plant that needs to be watered, but they didn't realize how dry the soil is. Well, the second part that you just mentioned, I, I have some feeling and understanding for that. We do programs, and the topic is compassion. And I hear from the organizers afterwards that this is the most well-attended medical grand rounds they can remember, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. So that tells me that people, doctors, are hungry, uh, at least on some level, maybe not always able to express it conceptually or verbally feel the need for more self-compassion and also be able to have the strength and the courage to cultivate compassion for their patients, for their team, their staff, etc. And then also, you know, for their family or for their loved ones. I definitely want to get to that and really explore compassion and self-compassion. But going back to one of your day jobs, yeah, how did you become the Dalai Lama's personal physician? Uh, you want a short answer or a long answer? <laughs> The answer that feels right. Okay. Because there's not a short answer to it, actually, (laughs) that would explain it in any, you know, level of clarity. So this goes back now 30 years. I just started living for one, two years in Dharamsala. I got a message that said, His Holiness the Dalai Lama would like to see you. So I was incredibly nervous, went to see him. And he said to me that he wanted to go to Rio de Janeiro. There was a very important environmental conference, international environmental conference that he wanted to attend. And he told me that his office got word that there was a cholera outbreak in Brazil and particularly in Rio. He asked me, is it safe for him to go? And I said to him, yes, it's probably safe 
for you to go if it's something very important for you because you'll stay in a good hotel, the water will be clean, the food will be clean, and we have a vaccine. Now, the vaccine is not 100%, but it will give you pretty good protection against getting cholera. If it's very important, the chances are overwhelming that you will stay safe and not come down with cholera. So he thanked me and I left. And I heard through the grapevine, maybe a week or two later, that he had consulted his main Tibetan medicine doctor, Dr. Tenzin Chodak, and had asked the same question. Now, this is just, I heard this rumor mill, you know. The rumor was that Dr. Chodak said, too dangerous, uh, don't go. So when I heard that, I thought, well, I'm not sure it's true, but if it is true, so be it. It's, of course, for His Holiness to decide what the best course of action is, to go or not to go. And then about a week later after that, uh, I got another message that said His Holiness would like to see you. So I went to see him, again, very nervous. I could hardly speak. And the long and the short of it was, he said, would you please give me that cholera vaccine? So I said, of course. And I tried to get the cleanest one I could find in that part of India. I came back to give him the cholera vaccine. And when I did that, again, very, very nervous. And there was another compounding issue that caused me to be anxious, which was there's kind of a unwritten rule, at least I thought at the time, that you never draw blood from a Buddha, never. And many people consider His Holiness the Dalai Lama a Buddha. And so, as you know very well, and I think your listener, many of your listeners know very well, when you give an injection, in this case a vaccine, intramuscular, you have to withdraw a little bit to make sure you're not in a blood vessel, an artery or a vein. And if you withdraw on the syringe just a little bit, and you find blood in the hub of your syringe, that tells you that you are likely in a vessel and you have to at least move the needle or remove it. And so I was pretty nervous at this point. <laughs> and I gave him the, uh, you know, I gave him the intramuscular vaccine and I withdrew slowly just a little bit on the syringe and there was no blood in the hub. And I had this incredible sense of relief. <laughs> I was like blood from a Buddha. <laughs> and uh, then I gave him the, uh, the vaccine. And you never show your back in that culture to someone like His Holiness. It's very disrespectful. So I knew that. So I'm backing up slowly. You know, I checked to make sure there was no blood. I rubbed it a little bit, put on a little Band-Aid. And I'm backing up, and he reaches out, and he takes my hand. And he says, please come with me. And he took my hand, and he took me into the next room, which was a small room. And in the center of the room, there was a table. And the table was square, maybe 120 to 130 centimeters, a little, you know, maybe four, four feet by four feet. And on it were, was this huge pile of semi-precious stones. And he took me by the hand and he walked me slowly clockwise around this table with the precious 
semi-precious stones. And on the outside, on the walls, were glass shelves. And on the glass shelves were these incredibly precious statues and ritual implements, such as a Vajra, a Dorji. There was a Vajra, a Dorji, a big one. Normally, they're about oh, four inches, five inches long. And they look like a dumbbell. You've got two ends are a little bigger and roundish, and then a smaller ball in the center. There was one that was probably about more than, more than a foot, huge Vajra Dorji, that His Holiness said that was Milarepa's. And Milarepa was a, a great, one of the greatest saint scholars who lived in, in Tibet a thousand years ago. And there were all these statues. Again, they're small you know, maybe a foot tall, maybe a foot and a half maximum and smaller, because people would then put them inside their clothing, usually monks inside their robes, and they could sneak them out of out of Tibet. If the Chinese were to find these, they would be confiscated. The person that was trying to take them out to, you know, give to his holiness or one of the monasteries in India would be imprisoned, tortured and maybe killed. So these were very, very precious for many reasons. So he walks me around three times, very slowly, pointing out each and every one of these on the glass shelves and telling me whose they were and a little bit of the history of each and every one. And so we finished doing that three times. And I'm still very nervous. I didn't want to take up his time. And so I'm kind of ready to back up and, and leave. And he tells me, no, stay, stay, he says. And he looked at this pile of semi-precious stones. And he looked and he looked and he looked. It seemed like forever, probably a minute or a couple minutes. And he pulls out one stone. And then he looks and he looks. And again, he pulls out a second stone. And then he hands these stones to me one by one. The first one is a crystal. It's the size of my little finger. And then he hands me a, a turquoise, which is the size of the half of my thumb. Then I left. And it was the most amazing experience that I had had in my life up to that point. And maybe, I mean, there have been some other memorable, incredible experiences, but that was one of the best ones that I've ever had. Then I left and he did go to Rio and did not get sick. Thankfully, he did not get <laughs> sick. And so that was really the beginning. I tell this long story to you, Rob because that was the beginning of my association with his holiness on a medical level, not on a Buddhist to the student or disciple. Um, and then nothing really happened. He was very healthy for many years. And then about 10, 12, maybe 12 years ago now, he had problems with his gallbladder. We knew that before, but nothing, you know, it wasn't really very symptomatic. It didn't require any treatment. Then he had more of a problem with his gallbladder. And he got sick. He got cholecystitis. We knew he had stones, cholelithiasis. His gallbladder was kind of disintegrating because there was some pus in the gallbladder. And he probably didn't even notice it. Or, or if he did, he probably didn't make much, you know, he wasn't concerned about it at all. And so at that point, we needed to do something surgically. It was supposed to be a 15-minute procedure according to the doctor, who's probably the best in this whole part of the world. 
And so in the surgery, 15, 20 minutes goes by. We're nowhere near completing the procedure. Half an hour, an hour, two hours, three hours. And after about three and a half hours was able to very successfully remove, you know, the pus, the necrotic, you know, gallbladder tissue and his holiness did incredibly well. His post-op recovery was faster than anyone the surgeon had ever seen. I mean, that's typically his holiness. When he came out of surgery, I was sitting there with his one of the two main attendants. I wanted him to see his attendant as he opened his eyes. I thought it would be more comfortable for him. This is probably the first surgery, certainly a mo- modern type of surgery that any of the 14 Dalai Lamas have ever had. And so I wanted to make it as comfortable for him as possible. I mean, not that I really need to do that. He's totally comfortable with everything and anything. But, you know, I I wanted to try to just, you know, max on that. And so when he opened his eyes, he was laying on his side and he was looking right at us. I didn't know how lucid he would be. And he gave a little smile and he said, I'm with the Buddhas, still under the influence of the anesthesia and all the medications. And he was with the Buddhas. So from that point on, that was 12, 15 years ago, 12, 14 years ago, then I've been much more actively involved with his medical care. We've been getting regular medical exams and workups every year uh, since that time at the Mayo Clinic until about two, three years ago when His Holiness, it was harder for him to travel this long distance. So he decided to get his regular care in India and still consulting our Mayo, Mayo doctors, which is what we still do. Barry, do you have, do you have some water? I do, and I'm going to take a drink. Okay, perfect. <laughs> you know, I'm not a long talker. It may sound like I am, but I'm really not. And I don't talk a lot. So I spend a lot of my life in silence. So that is the long answer to your question. You know, how did I rope in my day job, being his holiness, the Dalai Lama's <laughs> personal physician. <laughs> you mentioned something early on in that story, which was he consulted with you and he consulted with a Tibetan doctor. And I would imagine that it's easy to discount a form of medicine that is a thousand years old and throughout its history and its development didn't undergo the scientific scrutiny that what we're doing right now does. Although I guess, you know, early allopathic medicine didn't really either. But I think that it's easy discount. And I'm curious if there are patients or particular issues that you find that allopathic medicine maybe doesn't work for, hasn't worked for, that then the traditional medicine was quite effective. The answer is yes. A plea out of ignorance, please don't discount traditional healthcare systems because they're rich, they have a lot to offer, and they almost always are complementary with allopathic modern medicine. And maybe as important, there are many people out there that take them. And if you are a naysayer, they won't tell you about it, but they'll still take it. And if they don't develop trust with you, they may not take your medicine, the allopathic medicine. I see a lot of that. Doesn't mean you have to accept it, but be open and educate yourself, particularly if you have a number of patients who are interested in you know, traditional Chinese medicine, interested in Ayurved medicine from India, Ayurvedic medicine, or interested in Tibetan medicine. More and more people are availing themselves as Tibetan culture spreads more widely. So I'll give you some personal uh, stories to answer that question, Rob. When I was 10, 11, I had a subdural abscess. 
was in a coma for a month or two and obviously survived. Then subsequently, and then it developed into a, uh, an osteo-osteomolitis of the skull of my left frontal area. The neurosurgeon waited two years. He thought the bone of the skull would fill in. It did not. So they put in a plastic plate, which I still have. On the inferior, the lower portion of the plate, about every year, I would get severe pain for one, two, three days, and I'd have to kind of go to bed with it. It was just terrible. And I'm a, I have a high threshold for pain. Pain doesn't usually bother me much, but this one was severe. And so about 10, maybe 15 years ago, I started taking Tibetan medicine for this problem. Now, I should say that for the last 30 or 35 years, I've been taking Tibetan medicine virtually every day for toning up and maintenance and this and that. But about 15 years ago, maybe 12, 15 years ago, I started taking Tibetan medicine because of this uh, pain at the lower part of the uh, plate where it uh, attached to my skull. And I took the medicine faithfully. And after about three or maybe four years, I noticed that at this annual, and it wasn't exactly a year, but roughly a year, I'd get this severe pain that after some time, I would get the pain, but it was much less severe. It was something I could go about my regular business and not bother so much about, maybe take some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And then after another year or two, these pains went away completely. And I haven't had them for about a dozen years at all. And I had no other treatment. I'm confident that it was the Tibetan medicine that cured me. A second story, I was starting a small group four-month retreat, maybe a dozen people or something. And after one week, clinically, I developed severe kidney stone pain. I couldn't sit, I couldn't lie, I couldn't stand, nothing would, was helping. And it would come for roughly four hours, and then it would dissipate. It would go away for about four hours, you know, some hours. No escape from that. That is, oh, that is, that is intense. You, you know that. Huh? Yeah. 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 Did you try to use that pain as a meditation object for a while? You know, I tried a little, but it was too intense. Yeah. So then I decided, or I thought, okay, what about Tibetan medicine? Because, you know, I, at that point, 29 years ago, I'd already been taking it regularly and had some little successes. And so I went to see the best Tibetan medicine doctor alive at that time. He's now passed recently. He was in his 90s. Um, Dr. Uh, Yeshi Dundan, Yeshi Dundan. And early on in the 60s, he was the personal physician to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And so I went to see Dr. Yeshi Dundan, examined me, examined my urine, gave me medicine. And I w took the medicine, went back to the retreat center. By the time I got there, the pain had gone. So I thought, okay, this is just the normal cycle. It comes and it goes. The pain never came back. Of course, it doesn't always work. I mean, Nothing always sure, works. Sure. Allopathic medicine doesn't always work. It tends to be very good for neurologic problems, um, liver problems, and some mental disorders. Springboarding off of that, how have Buddhism and, I guess, in a larger sense, your spiritual path, I mean, because you've definitely had quite a, quite a path even since your younger years, informed your medical practice and your views on medicine in general, and maybe another way of asking that would be, what would Dr. Curzon in 
2020 say to the fresh family medicine resident grad, Dr. Curzon, practicing in Southern California in the 1980s? If you go back in time, say, here's what you're thinking now, but here's what it's going to look like in um, 40 years. I would say open your mind, open your heart. Do you think that when you were starting out, you didn't have an open mind or open heart? Well, that's all relative, Rob. Compared to today, I would say no. Compared to my colleagues uh, at that time, and probably my mind was relatively open and heart relatively open. I already had quite an interest in Eastern culture and spirituality and religion. Nearly became a psychiatrist because I you know, placed a lot of value in terms of mental health and one sense of well-being and beyond that flourishing to, you know, some degree, my heart and my mind was open, but certainly nowhere near the way. And I'm not bragging now because, you know, there's a lot more that I could do to open my mind and my heart much more. But um, I would say that today, compared to 40 years ago, my mind and heart are much more open. Do you ever feel burnt out in medical practice? Maybe if we go back to the 1980s, there were some times when I did feel burnt out. Since then, I don't think so. Do I get tired sometimes? Yeah, of course. So looking back on your earlier career and those times, you think, how was maybe maybe I was having some burnout, and now you're kind of like had this before and after study of yourself. What did you see as the root of the burnout back then? When I first started practice, insecurity, feeling like, you know, I don't know if I really know enough or I'm good enough. Like an imposter syndrome? Yeah, kind of like an imposter syndrome. You know, because prior to that, you know, when you're in your training, even if you're a, you know, a senior resident, you still have an attending, you know, that is there that you can turn to it when you need. That was there for the first couple years of going out into practice after finishing my training. I mean, that was always there to some degree, but less, much less after maybe two years or so. You know, it's a busy lifestyle and to keep up, uh, you don't want to get behind with your patients. We were doing, I was doing OB then, you know, sometimes that can be a little bit nerve wracking and sleep deprived because I'd be there with my patients almost always. And then the other issue, which I did not recognize, maybe I didn't recognize any of this stuff, I don't know, but trying to be a caring physician, but not knowing how to do that properly. So getting caught up too much in empathy, you know, empathy is standing in the other person's shoes. So you become actually too close emotionally, uh, almost to use some of the terminology from the addiction literature enmeshed, you become too close. And as a result of that, you end up taking on or owning the pain of the person that you're taking or trying to take care of. And you usually do that inadvertently. You don't do that intentionally. And, you know, as a doctor, you're, you know, working with suffering people every day. And if you're taking on their suffering multiple times and you don't know how to clear it, and we're not taught how to clear that, you know, other person's suffering that we've adopted, we've taken as our own, we've owned, that pain builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. And then it starts to cause a full-blown, it can cause a full-blown burnout syndrome where we start to lose interest, interest in our work. We lose interest in those other things that we 
love to do, hobbies, friends, uh, athletics. And then we you know, start to self-medicate, which we so easily do, as, particularly as physicians. Uh, we drink more. You know, we take more mind-altering substances uh, to try to soothe some of this pain. It causes uh, kind of an emotional block in terms of how we relate to others, including those that we love. And then we can go into a depression and um, we can begin to have thoughts or feelings of harming ourselves. All that can happen. Not that it happens all the time. Of course, it doesn't. But we're much more prone to go along that path if we practice empathy rather than compassion. So I often teach, particularly the healthcare professionals, but also to educators and teachers. We're working a lot now with police, fire, EMT, ambulance people. Teach them first to recognize empathy for what it is, and then to teach them what is compassion and then lastly, to teach them how they can move, move beyond empathy to compassion. And so what is compassion? So compassion, it's almost as if we take a half step emotionally back from empathy. So from being too close to the person that's suffering, that's, you know, our patient, for example. And by taking a half step back emotionally, it allows us to see more because we're less emotionally involved. Our heart is still open. We haven't become a stone. And by having a greater perspective, it allows us to make better decisions on how to reduce the suffering for that patient, how to be more effective with our treatment. And how we move from empathy to compassion, the main way we do it is just to recognize empathy for what it is, compassion for what it is, the deficits of empathy, of empathy and the benefits of compassion. And just by knowing all that, slowly we can observe how we react in situations with patients and we can begin to take that half step emotionally back. The feeling tone when we're practicing compassion is joy because we're trying to help somebody. It's tinged with sadness because we feel their pain, though we're not overwhelmed by their pain. So it's more of a tinge uh, or a little bit of sadness. The predominant feeling is, is happiness because we're helping or trying to help. So the differentiation between compassion and empathy is that compassion would be a half step back from empathy. It would be a half step back from our emotional stance or relationship to the patient compared to an empathetic stance. We're a little bit in our head for this, heart still open, but we're a little bit more in our head so that we can then assess the situation better and make better decisions to help the patient. Is there a specific mental exercise or meditation or guided process that someone could use or that you teach to say, here's how you very specifically take that half step back. I'm going to come at, at it from a side door, Rob, rather than the front door. And the side door is we have extensive ways to train compassion. And one of the places you can begin to learn more about compassion and how to train it up to increase it is to go to altruism in medicine Institute website, 
We have videos and a lot of written material and online curriculum just about to be launched. How would you define compassion by itself? If we've got empathy where you're stepping into the other's shoes and then you're, you're taking all of those layers on and those layers on and you're carrying more and more weight, as, as opposed to compassion is a little less of that, if compassion is existing by itself without a comparator to empathy, how would you define it? It's the wish and the action when we're able to reduce or even eliminate pain and suffering. I want to read part of the vision statement. You were just talking about altruism in medicine. And you say, by 2030, we aim to transform medical education to incorporate curricula of self-compassion, compassion for others, mindfulness, and resilience as essential as anatomy physiology and pharmacology. And when I read that, I think, yes, yes, this is, this is it. But then I think, how, how? Because <laughs> teaching science, I mean, you and I know, we've been, been through it, teaching science and facts, things external to you, that's pretty straightforward. But then it's like, how do you teach compassion on a curricular level? It's easy. The main obstacles are that people think it's too soft and has nothing to do with evidence-based medicine. This is hogwash. And more and more studies are showing that compassion improves health in the field of immunity, neurology, in the field of cardiovascular. There are many studies, and of course, in terms of psychiatry or, you know, in terms of mental health, uh, particularly depression. Um, there are, are many studies now that are you know, reasonably good studies. Of course, we have very few, you know, randomized controlled studies. These things are big. They're expensive. They require drug company money. And, you know, the drug companies aren't, aren't footing the bill for compassion, you know, research. <laughs> There's more and more research coming out that uh, supports compassion helps in many disorders. But even more than that, and I think in some ways, maybe much more than that. It helps keep doctors and nurses and health professionals sane, happy, tap into the meaning of why they went into medicine. Specifically, how is it taught? I mean, is it like a lecture-based format, small groups, reflective exercise, all the above? All the above. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can read, but that doesn't really do much to actually improve your compassion. It just gets it prepares you. And then you have to actually put it into action when you're, you know, seeing a patient or when you're with your, you know, your loved ones. To me, probably the most bang for the buck is this short statement, which is just as I only want to be happy and not have pain, so is the other person the same just wanting happiness and not, not wanting to hurt. So every time you meet somebody, every time you meet a patient, or maybe your colleagues, your staff, if you quickly internalize that thought, just like me, she or he just wants to be happy, doesn't want to hurt. Just that is enough to have a little bit of a change in the relationship with that patient or that person. And that's very, very powerful. If you don't do it, you don't get any mileage out of it. But if you think that every time you meet someone real quickly, because yeah, we don't have time, it will change the quality of that relationship. There are many other things, but that's a simple, 
bang, you know, most bang for your buck. I don't know if I said that expression right. I've been out of America for over 30 years. It holds up over time. It still works. I'm, I'm dating myself, probably. It's a beautiful one, and it's powerful. All of the things you mentioned. So we learn about compassion, and then we begin to see how we can actually practically put it into our daily routine. It doesn't take much time because we don't have extra time. And then thirdly, we also practice self-compassion that opens us more to be able to compa uh, practice compassion for others. I've heard that some Tibetan monks who were captured by the Chinese and you know, extensively tortured came away from it with no PTSD. And, you know, in circumstances where you would think most people would have severe PTSD and they said that they maintained compassion for their torturers throughout. And you've been with these monks. I mean, is that true? Yes, not all, but it is true for some. Yes. The doctor that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this uh, conversation, Dr. Tenzin Chodak, who was the Tibetan medicine doctor that His Holiness in 1990 or 91 consulted, or I heard he had consulted him about whether he should go to this environmental conference in Rio, where there was an outbreak of cholera. This doctor was imprisoned and extensively tortured for 18 or 20 years before he was able to escape and then come to India. And psychiatrists met with Dr. Chudok, and they did kind of more informal exams on him and determined that he was very healthy uh, from a cognitive mental health perspective. This has been done with many other people that have been you know, tortured over a decade or several decades in the Chinese gulag in Tibet. So that is true. Now, I want to tell you a story uh, about the last part of your inquiry, which is there was an older monk that came, that escaped, had been about 20 years had been imprisoned and tortured in the Chinese gulag in Tibet, came to Dharamsala, and he got an audience with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And when they were talking, he, at one point, he stopped. He almost was in tears. And he said, he at one point, during all of his experiences there in prison, he, he, he hit a, a huge obstacle. He thought everything was finished. And so when His Holiness tells this story, the Dalai Lama, he says he thought at that point in the discussion that the monk was saying he thought he was going to die. And then the monk continued. And what he said was he thought that he might lose his compassion for the prison guards who had been torturing him. This is a true story. And I've heard this from His Holiness, who, you know, who talked to this monk directly. I've met that monk. He's now died, but I've met that monk also. And that comes from the Buddhist practice of compassion. You're not compassionate just towards some and not towards others, or just compassionate to those you feel you love or you like, and not towards those who you don't know or who are so-called enemies. You're compassionate to everyone. It's unconditional. And you're equally as compassionate with the one that may be torturing you compared to the one that you're in love with, for example. To reach that state of compassion obviously is not easy. So, you know, it's not everybody that can have that experience, but there are some that do. 
that have reached that that level of un- unconditional compassion. Well, it sounds like the the mantra that you were mentioning before, kind of you know, like what you're invoking in your brain when you see someone else to try to rewire your brain or to wire your brain for compassion. That's a start. Even if you don't, it's almost say this thing, and eventually, it will become your habit of how you view other people. That's exactly right. If you continue with that mantra, just remembering before when you meet someone, just like me, she or he just wants to be happy and not hurt. Number one, what it does is it recognizes their kind of larger situation in life, that they're just trying to be happy. Number two, it brings you close because you're saying, just like me, she or he just wants to be happy. So you're finding commonality. Generally, when we meet someone, we do the opposite. You know, we find difference. We do it all the time. Even if we don't express it, we think negatively. You know, we put down their hairstyle, clothing, their color coordination. And we may even put down the color of their skin, gender. We put down so much. We get jealous all the time. We, we feel that if they've done something well, they look beautiful, they've said something beautiful, they act in a wonderful way, that it somehow makes us you know, feel inferior. So we get jealous. We do that all the time. We find differences. And what happens when we find differences? Well, it doesn't usually hurt the other person, unless, of course, you act out on it and you're really aggressive, which we don't usually do. But who, who gets hurt? We get hurt when we practice jealousy or think in a jealous way or criticize in a very negative way or put other people down. It hurts us. Doesn't hurt them usually very much. It hurts us. So by practicing this way to see commonality rather than different, of course, difference is there, but it's not a big thing. It's not that important. It's very superficial. If we look deeper and act on a deeper level of commonality, that we're all human, it even goes for the animals, you know, we just want to be happy and not hurt. If we recognize that commonality, it connects us. We feel connected to that other person. And the more you do this and make this a habit, the more connected you feel. And so our relationship automatically changes in the positive direction with that other person when you remember this mantra. So it's a very powerful approach to cultivating compassion. We're recording this on November 3rd, 2020, which is election day in the United States. And rather than the relationship of someone torturing and someone tortured, it's the relationship between following and belief in the two political parties. And there is so much invective. I, I know many people who have dissolved friendships. Somebody follows one politician over another And the only thing that they can see is the lunacy of the other, of the short-sightedness of the other. And there is, there's no sense of, well, you know, that person actually just wants happiness as well. And, you know, and this will come out after the election's over and there's going to be, there's going to be hard feelings on one side or the other. And I think that invoking this compassion, well, for others, and we will get to self in a moment, but evoking this compassion might be an effective tool to allay some of that anxiety and some of that divisiveness. Yes, I think it will be one tool to uh, reduce divisiveness. 
you know, I think we're going to have to seriously consider a national reconciliation like Nelson Mandela and Bishop uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know, were able to pull off in South Africa after apartheid was removed and ended up being pretty much a bloodless transition. You know, I, I think we're going to have to work very hard at being inclusive uh, so we don't leave people out who are citizens uh, of this country and or residents of this country. But if we can develop some respect for others, even if we don't agree, this is something that's lacking in many quarters today. And I think we need to come back to that mutual respect, even in the face of difference. We've lost trust in each other. You know, when you get a flavor of a political persuasion, if it's not yours, there's zero trust right, anymore. Right. And, and that's really sad. And so I think based on respect, honesty, the whole thing kind of, you know, the fulcrum is honesty. We've got to be honest and transparent. And based on honesty, transparency and respect, then we can begin to bring back trust. And that's a very important ingredient in our society. And it's incredibly important and necessary in healthcare. You said something just before that, that made me think of, and we're talking about compassion, talk, you know, like what's your internal dialogue when you see someone else that's different or you see someone else who has something you don't have. And you said this in an interview, I don't know, it was like seven years ago, at least when it was posted online. And I had never thought of it before, or nor, nor had I heard it. It was practicing rejoicing as a response to experiencing a negative emotion. I guess this is probably overlaps in the Venn diagram with compassion, but the case that you gave was feeling jealous of a friend or maybe a coworker who got a raise or promotion and you didn't. And you think, oh, this is a zero sum game. They win, so I lose. But if I win, then they have to lose. <laughs> and, <laughs> and how does it work to replace that jealousy with rejoicing? Because I think you'll still feel it and, you know, I'd have to acknowledge it. But is that rejoicing something that you actually have to believe in the moment? Okay, I immediately have to switch my emotional response and feel happy for him and his family. Or is it more of what we we're talking about before, a mental exercise that can induce a state change and then over time, really believing that, that comes later? Yeah, I think it's the latter. First, seeing the benefits of uh, rejoicing or appreciation and the deficits of jealousy. It's a little bit like, you know, stopping smoking. If you're not convinced that it's in your best interest to stop smoking, unlikely you're going to stop smoking. I mean, you still may not stop even if you see the, the deficits and the benefits of stopping, but you'll be, it'll be easier for you to stop. And the same thing. So you recognize the deficits, how jealousy robs you of your inner peace. You don't feel well when you're jealous. If you are able to rejoice, if you're able to appreciate the other's success, take a moment and, and, and reflect, what does that feel like for you? You feel good. Beginning to convince yourself that it's in your best, you, even your best interest to practice rejoicing or appreciation instead of uh, jealousy. That's the first step. Second step is kind of recognition. So that's the mindfulness piece to pay attention to what's inside. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And when you notice, oh, here's this jealousy thing coming up again. So you have to recognize it. And then the third step 
is you learn how to replace, not suppress the jealousy, but replace it with appreciation or, or, or rejoicing. And then you practice it. You won't get it right the first time, the second time, the third time. These things take perseverance. They take practice. But if you stay with it, then you will begin to actually experience appreciation rather than jealousy. And again, you're not suppressing the jealousy because that we know that suppressing your negative emotions never works because they still are there. And later on, they just explode. It's actually transforming. And the process is what I've just mentioned, rather than suppressing. I want to get back to altruism in medicine. What you were talking about before was, you know, one of the goals is teaching self-compassion. And most clinicians I know, they're actually pretty compassionate people. Yes. Once the focus gets outside themselves, but the internal dialogue yeah. can be suffocatingly self-critical, potently self-judgmental. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's funny, we had an interview with Dr. Lauren Rausch, one of the wisest physicians I know. It was a few months ago, and he said, in effect, I want to make a little card that everyone who graduates from medical school carries around that they can look at that says, remember self-compassion. There's a lot yeah. of layers of the onion, to, especially this population, to work through to get to that point. I mean, how do you teach self-compassion? Yeah. Well, Dr. Rausch, I, I second the motion. I would love to also have those cards. That, uh, so how do you do that? How do you reach that state? Of course, it's a spectrum. And, you know, sometimes we have more, sometimes we have less. But to move up the scale, if you will, for that metaphor to, to, to have more self-compassion is trainable. There are a number of approaches. Let's start with this one. I think this is a pillar to learn to spend more time in the present moment. That's mindfulness with a capital M, being in the present moment and observing inside. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Mindfulness with a small m is concentration meditation. So there's an overlap, as you say, Rob, in the Venn diagrams, but they're not the same. So with a capital M, mindfulness is dropping into the present moment and observing your inner life, your thoughts, your feelings. So how do you do that? Well, using the mindfulness with a small m as a tool, it helps you to be able to at will drop into the present moment. Now, when you drop into the present moment, it means that you're not in the past, you're not in the future. And when is it that you're undercutting yourself? When you're doubting yourself, that you're saying you're not, you know, you're stupid, you're, you don't have these skills or those skills. It's when we're in the past and we're remembering something or when we're planning or we're worried or fearful about something coming up that is the future. So if you can train yourself to drop into the present moment through doing regular daily, even five minutes, uh, concentration, compassion, and I'll explain that in a moment how we do it. We will slowly train ourselves to be able to drop into the present moment at will. Now, we can do this. For example, if you're doing some procedure or surgery, most likely you are in the present moment that whole time. You're not going to take your eye off of a potential bleeder or this or that, right? You are totally concentrated. Now, many of you play music. Many, many of us listen to music. When you're absorbed in music, you're in the present moment. Many of us are doing some kind of artwork. 
when you do your artwork or you're observing, appreciating good art, uh, you're in the present moment. When you're out in nature, you tend to be more of the time in the present moment because nature helps you do that. Meditation is another wonderful tool to help develop that presence so you can drop into the present moment at will. So that helps you tremendously to reduce and eventually eliminate all that chatter of negative criticism about ourself that is not productive. I mean, sometimes you have to, of course, question what you've done and try to go move on and learn from it, of course. But we do probably a thousand times more of that that is helpful or productive, that is, in fact, counterproductive. So that's one way through practicing with the small m, a mindfulness, concentration, meditation, to help us cultivate the large m, mindfulness, of being present and observing our inner life, our thoughts and our feelings in the present moment. Another approach is compassion. So we talked a fair amount or somewhat about compassion for others. The more you do that, it takes you away from your own me, me, me stuff. You know, even if it's, you know, self-criticism and all that stuff, it takes you away from that thinking about having concern about the welfare of others. That's another, you know, approach to what compassion is. And when we do that, when we're in that mode, we're not, you know, in this me, me, me stuff and putting ourselves down. So that's another way to develop self-compassion is through compassion for others. Thirdly, just be kind to yourself. Remember that again and again and again and again. Oh, yeah. What do you say? Oh, yeah. Be kind to myself. Well, I don't know how to be kind to myself. Well, think about it. You do. Cut yourself some slack. Take a break, even even a couple minutes. You know, do something nice for yourself when you have a little time off. Spend a little time with important relationships in an open way. So, you know, it's meaningful for both parties. You can develop more closeness. Forgiveness is incredibly important. And forgiveness for others begins with forgiving yourself. People say to me, well, I don't know how to forgive myself. I can't do that. Start with the little ones. Start with the little hurts first. It's not a matter of right or wrong. Some people think when you forgive yourself or forgive others that you're saying, well, they are right. Or, you know, have a hurt that you caused yourself that you were right. It's not a matter of right or wrong. Not at all. It's just a matter of letting go of the hurt, the pain. And it's usually a solo activity. You don't have to involve the other person if it involves another person. So let let go of the hurts that you've caused yourself. Forgive yourself. Start with the small ones first and then gain some confidence that you can do it. You can let go of the hurt. You can forgive yourself and then go to a little bit stronger ones. And then do that with others, too. You know, a solo activity. You're letting go of the hurt. It allows you to open your heart more uh, to be more a happy person. So that would be, I guess, number four would be forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiving others. And there are other ways to develop self-compassion. But those are some of the pillars. When you've got self-criticism, especially 
with you know a, a large part of this audience. Well, some of it is naturally because to get here, you, you probably had a bit of perfectionism. And so with that comes self-criticism. But then you run into these events where you have a bad case, had a bad outcome, you're being sued, and these self-critical thoughts are really ruminating. And with the mindfulness practice, do you answer them? Do you talk back to them? Or do you acknowledge them? And that helps to lessen their impact. Yeah, I think acknowledgement is a big part of it. That's where we often start. And that's the capital M mindfulness piece to observe in the present moment, our inner stuff, what's happening, thoughts, feelings, emotions. And so when we recognize that we're, you know, self-critical, that's an important step forward just to recognize or acknowledge. And then we can tell ourselves, well, you know, I'm human. To be human is to err. We make mistakes. And so to recognize that, you know, we're going to make mistakes and that's okay. Now, it doesn't let us off the hook, but it's okay to make mistakes. If we make a mistake, we got to work with it. If it's serious, you know, we got to try to, you know, figure out what to do. Uh, if it's not so serious, let it go. You know, we're going to make tons of mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, but it doesn't knock me out of the water. So there's a wonderful Tibetan saying, which is nine times falling down, or sometimes translated as failing or making mistakes, and nine times picking yourself up or moving on. There's no guilt there. There's no beating yourself up there. It's very practical. So more of an approach that way, I think, is more healthy for us all. You know, I want to return to something you asked before that we didn't quite finish. When you feel jealous, rejoice. So now I'm going to put a little different twist on, you know, the opposite of jealousy is rejoicing or, or appreciation. I'm going to put a little twist on this. Rejoice in terms of feel happy. So you notice that you're feeling jealous and you feel happy. Well, that seems crazy, but it's not. Peacocks are said to drink poison, and they're not harmed by it. In fact, it's nourishing for them, poison. Now, there are people that are called bodhisattvas, and these are people practicing bodhicitta. So bodhicitta is this universal compassion that includes everyone, excludes no one. So when we practice that, we almost relish being in very difficult situations or being with very difficult people. Why? Because it gives us an opportunity to work on our negative or almost automatic negative reaction and work on it to try to slowly over time change that negative uh, reaction, you know, transform it or change it into a positive one. Gives us that opportunity being in a tough spot. So in that sense, to rejoice when we notice jealousy, it's like, wow, this gives me an opportunity to work on my jealousy, and I'm happy for that. I want to change gears as we have just a, just a little bit of time left to some of your practice and your life in Dharmasala, or do you, do you pronounce it Dharmasala? Yes, Dharmasala, correct. Dharmasala. I'm curious as to your interactions with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, 
when you're discussing medical choices with the idea of, you know, like a core aspect of Buddhism is acknowledging impermanence and accepting things as they are. And of course, you know, you want to keep your body physically healthy. I mean, how in your conversations with him, how do those things balance out? It's sometimes tricky, Rob. His holiness is, in many ways, his qualities are beyond human. He has a mind that's incredibly deep and profound. And so sometimes I can almost psych myself out by saying, well, he's going to know best. There's no role for play. <laughs> and then I have to catch myself. Well, I'm not being asked. I'm asked to be you know, a physician here. So then I have to catch myself and try to do it like a physician would, but always recognizing that giving him, you know, informing him so then he can make the best decision ultimately. And, and I think we do that with all of our patients. I mean, his holiness is very different from all my other patients, but, you know, to let them make be involved in the decision making process to accurately, you know, inform them of the situation. But sometimes it can be a little tricky, and I have to catch myself and remember, I'm being asked to play the role of the physician here, so do that the best you can. Having said that, you know, and I don't do this with any of my patients, I don't come off as the, as the God, you know, telling people what they need to do, and certainly I would not do that with His Holiness. You know, I, I think that we've developed a relationship over the last 15 years. Um, we know each other pretty well. I will listen a lot to what he has to say. And often he doesn't speak right away. So you have to have these kind of pregnant pauses, be comfortable in the silence. And then often he will come up with something, which is very important. And if you're too quick or too busy, you'll miss that. And then you miss a very significant portion of the medical interaction and potential uh, treatment. Do you do a specific mental or meditative or breathing preparation for those visits? Or is it just kind of like you would be preparing for any other patient? Not always, but often I'll be waiting a little bit before we go in to see him. And then I will stay quiet and I will do a little meditation. I do do that. He puts you at ease. I mean, he puts me at ease. Uh, he's just such an incredible being that you feel so much at ease being around him that that helps tremendously. What has surprised you about him that most people wouldn't expect? <laughs> so many things. Okay, let me give you one thing. Some of you may have to take with a grain of salt, perfectly fine, but I'll tell you my experience. Many years ago, I was at a teaching that he was giving, and there are thousands and thousands of people there. And I'm sitting about three meters away from him to his left. He's up on a high throne, as he does when he teaches, not because he wants to, because people put him up there. It's the tradition. It's not putting him on the throne, but it's putting the teachings on the throne, because the teachings allow someone to be fully omniscient and attain enlightenment and the most profound joy that is so far beyond our imagination, unconditional love, compassion, and the fullest extent of wisdom. So that's why the teachings are put up on a pedestal. So the person giving the teachings sits on a high throne. I'm sitting on the floor, a little cushion off to his left, immediately to his left, 90 degrees, right? During the teachings, he's doing a lot of stuff with his hands, some ritual stuff. He looks over at me. I mean, he turns his head 90 degrees, looks right at me, and uh, 
He smiles. And then he turns back and he goes, continues, you know, didn't lose a beat, his teachings. And I thought, holy shit, he read my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And just as I thought that, he turns to me again, you know, moments later, looks at me and smiles. I said, he really did read my mind. Well, I've had that experience a number of times where it's been incontrovertible, you know, to me. I've been totally convinced, you know, using my scientific side of side of me, that he's actually read my mind. For him, I'm sure that's kid's play, Rob. His mind is so developed that to read someone else's mind who you have a connection with, I'm his doctor, I'm his student, um, is kids play. But it did surprise me (laughs) when it happened. I'll tell you a second story. There was a, up until a number of years ago, because since 2008, none of the Tibetans could escape anymore. They'd either be killed in the process by the PLA, or they just literally couldn't, couldn't, they were so watched so closely, they couldn't come. Uh, so nobody's come to Dharamsala from Tibet since 19, uh, 2008. But before that, he would have Friday afternoon, one o'clock, so-called audiences or interviews kind of with people that escaped out of from Tibet. So there'd be a long line of people, maybe 20 or sometimes bigger, longer line of people waiting to see him on the Friday afternoon at one o'clock. And they would come up to him and he would often ask him the name, where in Tibet they were from. And most of them would be crying uncontrollably, just crying, crying. And then they would move on in the line. And sometimes he would ask a little more. And there was an older man. And his holiness said to him, please, would you mind just, you know, step off to the side? I'd like to say a few more words with you once we, you know, are able to meet everybody, meet and greet everybody. So he did, he met and greeted everyone, and then he, the elderly man, was brought back to him. And his holiness said to the man, do you remember when you were escaping Tibet, and you came to a place where there were two options for you to kind of go right or you go left, and you didn't know which was the safest, which way would get you out of Tibet alive, and you sat and you pondered, and then you you saw somebody ride up on a white horse. And the person said, basically, go that way. And you followed the advice and you were able to escape Tibet and not be killed. And you ended up uh, coming to Dharamsala to see me. And the man kind of was a little shocked, you know, that how would his holiness know this? And the man said, yes, I remember that happening. And then his holiness started to laugh. And the man looked at him and his holiness said, that person on the white horse was me. (laughs) it's a true story now that doesn't get told much his holiness is incredibly humble so he doesn't tell these stories maybe i shouldn't be telling so much either but uh, (laughs) this is his holiness this is one infinitesimal piece of who his holiness is that's when what i mean when i say he's looks human but his qualities are way beyond human well as we close up here's the big question what would be your prescription for longevity in a career in medicine, or maybe maybe just longevity? Compassion. Compassion. Well, Barry, thank you so much for 
taking the time and sharing your wisdom and experience and stories. And I look forward to our follow-up interview. In fact, I'm going to say, I can't wait. <laughs> thanks, Rob. And thanks for reaching out. And I think this has been a wonderful couple hours that we've spent together. And I look forward to more. Ooh la la. You know what? I don't have a bucket list, but if I did, that conversation would certainly have been on it. If you want to hear more of what Barry has to say, he has what's called a public figure Facebook account, meaning he'll answer questions, but he's not going to be chatting, where he posts three lessons a week. Recently, a lot of stuff on self-compassion. Altruism and Medicine has an Instagram account, A-I-M-I Compassion. And of course, they have an excellent website, all of which we will link to in the show notes. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can find all of the old episodes. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can see some videos. Have a good old time. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. Stitcher, Spotify. I don't know. There's so many of them out there. I can't even list them. If it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all of the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.